If you have a copy of God's Word, I would love to look with you this morning in the book of Ephesians at the end of chapter 3. The words are in the bulletin, should be on the screen behind me. Um, As we continue on in our study of this book together, we come this morning to another one of the Apostle Paul's prayers. So I hope that these words, uh, if you've never heard them before, I hope that they are overwhelmingly encouraging for you. And if you've heard them a lot, I hope just the sheer fact of hearing this read publicly would encourage you this week. Uh, These words are profoundly encouraging to me. Uh, Hear this. This is God's word. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Something else, isn't it? Let's pray. Let's pray that God would help us take everything we can out of these verses. Lord, your word is so good. Lord, would you cause us to give our lives all that we are to you afresh. Take our lives, Lord, and let them be. Let them be all for you, so that we would love you with our minds, our hearts, our souls, our strength, so that all that we are, we would love you, and we would love our neighbor as ourselves. Act on us. Act on us, that we might know Jesus, that we might know you, Jesus, better and better, and that our lives might say that these words are true. From Ephesians 3. For your glory, I pray. Amen. Wherever you are in thinking about uh, Christianity this morning, if you're here and you're just exploring uh, some of the truth claims of Christianity, or you're just here because you're new to Greenville and you think this is an important thing to do in Greenville is to show up to church because it's socially accepted, or whether you've known the Lord Jesus for years and years and years, whether you're just beginning exploring or been with Christ longer than I've been alive. Prayer is an essential part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Prayer is simply talking with God. And prayer is really, really important. It is vital in the life of every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is really important. And I want us to move beyond the cliches that we uh, are so often, that we so often use that often follow empty. You know the cliche that we say all the time, I'll pray for you? 
but yet we never do it. You know, we just say that. I want us to move beyond thinking about that statement and the cliches. I want us to move into, for a moment, thinking about why is it that you pray? If you're here this morning and you're thinking about Christianity, you need to think about why in the world you should pray. Why should you ever do that? And if you love the Lord Jesus, why is it that you pray? Two thoughts came to mind as I was thinking through this. One is oftentimes we pray because it's rote, you know? It's the thing we do. We all sit down for a meal and boom, we can't eat until we pray, right? Because that's somewhere not in the Bible. By the way, nothing wrong with praying before you eat. Just saying. We often just do it as something that's rote. We're not really thinking about it. We're not really engaged. Our hearts are not really engaged with it. It's just something we do. It's just a box we check. So at the end of the day, we can think, yeah, I prayed at every meal today. I've prayed, right? Here's another thing or another reason that we often pray desperation. If you were to look at your life, when do you mostly, when is the, when is the, when is the, when is the time that you pray the most? I got to guess, when you're desperate. You get down and out, you're not sure what's going on, and by the way, being desperate, that's a great time to pray. So is every other time. I'm just trying to get us to think about when do we pray? What is it that motivates us to pray? Oftentimes, I think it's just rote or just desperation. And when we read this passage, it seems to me that two things are driving Paul to pray. It seems to me that two things are converging. They're coming together for Paul that leads him to pray. Here's the first one. Paul, what motivates Paul to pray is he is internalizing the gospel. Remember, John Paul talked about this with us last week, the first 13 verses. Notice how he starts these verses. For this reason, I bow the knee. For this reason. He's connecting us to the first 13 verses. He's praying because he has internalized the gospel. He's been thinking through what does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus has torn down the wall of hostility? You remember when we talked about that? Jesus has done everything to remove all dividers. He is making a new man. He is actually removing hatred and hostility that we have toward other people. Jesus has done away with that so that we would be unified. And Paul, in the first 13 verses of chapter 3, is thinking about that. He's internalizing that. And he's realizing that he must see all of his life through the lens of Jesus. You remember how this is highlighted in particular in these first 13 verses of chapter 3? Paul even considers his chains in Jesus. Do you remember that? He's thinking about all of his circumstances, everything in his life, through the lens of Jesus. Therefore, for this reason, I want to pray for you, he says. He's internalizing the gospel because he wants us to internalize the gospel. He is thinking about what it means to view everything in life through the lens of Jesus. 
Because he understands that God has a plan for all things. God has a plan to reunite all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus. And that means everything that's going on in his life connects him to Jesus. And he wants us to do the exact same thing. That's why he prays. Here's the second thing that I think is working together with this to lead Paul to pray. And it's doxology. Doxology just means giving glory. Giving glory to God, to speak glory, to say good things, to to bless in particular God. Look at verse 20 and 21. Paul is overwhelmed with the idea of giving God glory. Paul is overwhelmed with the glory of God and the glory of God in particular spreading through the church. Listen to these verses. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever, amen. Paul is absolutely caught up in the glory of God as it is spreading through the church. What that means is, Paul's thinking about the institution. He's thinking about the organization of the church. He's thinking about elders, and he's thinking about deacons, and he's thinking about the children of the church. He's thinking about everything. He's thinking about the kingdom of God expanding throughout the earth. Do you remember the first 13 verses? Paul was saying, oh yeah, I was brought into this. I was the least of all, and God's grace was for me. Remember, Paul's early life was walking away from God. Paul's early life was actually pursuing and persecuting people who said that they followed God. And God did something radical in Paul's life, and it changed him so that he understood oh, God has been pursuing me my entire life. And the very people that I used to pursue, I am now pursuing them to tell them about the love of God. Not how much I dislike them and what they believe and what they're doing. You see, Paul lived in the first century. Don't overlook this. Before Jesus went to heaven, he said that his people are gonna be his witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria, and then the end of the world. Do you know who the primary agent was that started taking the gospel outside of Jerusalem and into the world? Paul. Paul had observed all of this growth in the church from Jerusalem all the way out to Turkey, where a bunch of these churches were gathered together. He was overwhelmed at the glory of God, that the resurrection of Jesus, the literal historical resurrection of Jesus, launched the changing of the world. And Paul was part of that. It was a message that he hated, that he came to love. Do you remember in Acts chapter 18 and 19 and 20, where we see how the gospel first made it to Ephesus? Do you remember Paul's relationship with the elders at this church in Ephesus? When he had to go and plant churches elsewhere, he was weeping and crying with them because their relationship was so strong. Paul 
wanted to pray for the people because he had internalized the gospel and he wanted us to do the same thing. And Paul, what led him to pray was that he was so overwhelmed with the glory of God and the spreading of the church and God's glory being seen in the church. It was something that he wasn't a part of. And now he had a significant role in it. He was telling people, this is the truth. Jesus came and died. He died for people. And he rose from the dead so that he would launch this absolutely world-changing truth. That through the power of his death and resurrection, God's glory is going to be displayed throughout the whole earth. So that heaven and earth will be reunited again. Remember he said that in chapter 1 of Ephesians verse 10. Paul is overwhelmed with this, and that leads him to pray. And notice what he says in verse 20 and 21 in being caught up with the glory of God. He's like, whatever I've asked for, God can do far more than what we could ask or think. What I asked for, which we haven't even talked about yet, there is no limit to what God can do. It's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I sure would love if I would more frequently pray for people because I have internalized the gospel and it leads me to want others to see and know the same gospel in their lives. I sure would, I would love... I wish it was more frequent in my life that I was so overwhelmed with the glory of God that it led me to pray. I would love it if it was on my mind more and on my heart more that God is in the business of reuniting heaven and earth in Jesus. And that led me to pray. Because then maybe I would go through circumstances like Paul and maybe in prison, may have chains on, Or maybe for me, it's just more like, you know, disagreement with my wife, struggling with my children. And because I was so overwhelmed with the glory of God and what God was doing, it would lead me to pray and to be thankful because I could keep in mind the big picture of what God is actually doing in the world. And it meant that I could see all of my circumstances through the lens of Jesus, even chains, even difficulties, even hardships. Well, here's Paul's one request. Let's dive into those verses that come after the first part of verse 14 and before verse 20. Paul has one request. This is what he prays for. In essence, at the end of verse 19, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. How about that for a request? Paul prays that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, here are a couple little details about this request that are important to notice. He prays that not only individually, that you, if you look back through the text in those verses, 15 and 16, 17 and 18, that you would have these things, but he also prays this as a community. Look in verse 18, for us collectively as the church. He prays these things, look at this phrase in verse 18, with all the saints. So what he's praying for in order that we would be filled with the fullness of God is he wants us individually to be filled with the fullness of God and he wants us as a corporate body, as the church, to be filled with the fullness 
of God. In chapter 4, he's going to start working through different gifts, and we'll get there. But think about that. Individually and collectively, we need each other. God is using all of us to display his glory, and he's filling us individually and corporately together with his fullness. And here's another little detail. Look in verse 21. Throughout all the generations, what Paul prayed for in the first century is the same thing that he would pray for in the second century and the next century to every generation. There is a perpetual need. We are always in need of being filled with the fullness of God. We always need more and more of God as we live and work out our callings in the world. Now let's look at the different pieces of this one request. One request, be filled with all the fullness of God. Look at these different pieces. Look at verse 16 and 17, the first part of verse 17. That we would be strengthened in our inner being, in our inner man, for Christ to dwell in us. That we would be strengthened inside, in our inner being, our innermost being, so that Christ would dwell in you, in me, in us. That's an interesting request, isn't it? That, that we would have strength so that Jesus would dwell in us? There are a couple fascinating things about this request. One of them is this, that when Paul says that you would be granted this, the word and the idea that Paul's using to convey that is more like that you would be ambushed. That you would be so overwhelmed with who God is that it would strengthen you to want more and more of Christ. It means that God would grant this to us, that we would want more and more of Christ, that we would be so overwhelmed with the loveliness of God and the beauty of Jesus that we would want that more and more. And this idea about Christ actually dwelling inside of us, it's not a temporary residence. It's that we want more and more of Christ We want him to grow in our lives. It's not that Jesus died and rose from the dead just to get us in the door of salvation, then we just keep it going by our own effort. It's that we would want Jesus to become larger and larger in our lives, which means by necessity that we would get smaller and smaller that our view of our own power and our own strength would continue to decrease. And our view of Christ and his strength would continue to increase. He also prays, here's another little component of this, that we would be rooted and grounded in love. He takes two ideas here. One is a planting, an agricultural idea, and the other, other is more of a construction idea. And he's saying that he wants the roots of our lives to be the love of God. And he's saying all the action of our lives, the life that we build, ought to be built off of and around the foundation of the love of God. So that everything about us, what's deepest and most intimate in us, has been captivated by the love of God. And that the actions of our lives, the things that we say, the way we carry ourselves, how we relate to others, would all be characterized by love. 
That's what he's saying. That we would be rooted in love, the innermost part of our being, and that we would be grounded in love. So no matter what we do, people would say, that is a loving person. Even when we have to say things that are hard. Even when we have to do things that are difficult. We can communicate things, whatever it is, in love. That's what Paul is praying for. Part of being filled with all the fullness of God is that the love of God encompasses the deepest thing about us and what we do outwardly, what we say and how we live. He even prays that we would be strengthened to comprehend, in verse 18, the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God. It's the kind of thing that surpasses our knowledge, meaning we could never ultimately know all of this. We are finite creatures, and we cannot contain and hold and take in all of the infinitude of who God is and his love. But he wants us to continue to grow in it. He wants us to continue to understand the length and width and height and depth of God's love for us. In other words, Paul prays that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. He prays that we would be filled with God. He's trying to use words to describe something that we can't totally comprehend. He's trying to talk about something that is so much bigger than how we typically think. And it's so much deeper than how we typically think. He wants us to know that we have been given everything. And he wants us to live out of the fullness we have in God. Now let's think about this request for a minute. Paul wants us to be filled with all the fullness of God. Isn't this a strange request? I mean, it's kind of strange. Because when you think about it, you realize that Paul is actually asking for things that we already have, right? He's asking for things that we already have. If we are a follower of Jesus, Christ is living within us, right? If we are a follower of Jesus, then God's love has touched the deepest thing in our lives. We are rooted in the love of God. And we're striving by the work of the Spirit to live out that love and to be loving toward others. We're trying to do that already, right? But that's what Paul asked for here. We're already somewhat aware of the length and depth and height and breadth of the love of God. And yet, Paul says that we ought to want more of that. It's interesting. He's praying for things and he's making requests for something that we already have. Maybe he does that because we have a tendency not to want what God wants for us. Maybe he's making this prayer because we're not seeking what God wants. We want something else. Have you ever noticed that in your own life? That you want something from God that's different than what God actually wants for you? I can only imagine the Apostle Paul in his own life. I mean, do you remember that he really that he had something that he struggled with? You remember this? In his own life, Paul had some type of chronic problem. It's characterized by this thorn in the flesh. Do you have a thorn in the flesh? Do you have something that you struggle with? Paul did too. And he prayed 
that God would remove it. I'm sure that he prayed that in faith. I'm sure that he prayed that trusting God. But do you know what God's answer to that was? No, Paul, it's actually good that you keep it. Because my grace is made perfect in your weakness. You remember that? No, that's an encouragement for us to pray to God about all kinds of things. Whatever the chronic things are in our lives, the struggles that we all have, the pain, the frustrating things, of course we pray those to God. But this is a prayer that you can never get wrong. We can pray for God to remove things from our lives and he might actually say, no, it's best that it stays. But being filled with the fullness of God, 100% of the time, you're dead on. You are on point if you pray that God would fill you more and more with his fullness. You can't go wrong with that one. And maybe it's because being filled with the fullness of God helps us handle everything else. And maybe it's because being filled with all the fullness of God means that I can even look at my chains and realize that they are chains in Jesus. You see, we often don't want what God wants for us. Maybe in the church here at Ephesus, what was going on is this. Maybe they started thinking that their relationship with God originated with them. Maybe they started living their lives as if they're the ones who's in control of what's going on with God. Maybe they started living their lives as if to say, well, I am going to maintain my relationship with God by everything that I'm doing. Maybe they thought the whole purpose of salvation, the whole purpose of redemption is me. I am the great end of this thing with God. I'm the purpose of this. Maybe they were putting up some dividing walls that separated people for needless reasons. That's already something that Paul's addressed here. Maybe they were putting up dividing walls toward other people, walls of hostility, living lives by comparison, thinking that they were better than others, unwilling to yield, unwilling to love. What is it that we've been settling for? We can certainly struggle with the same things that Paul addresses here. That might have been there at the Ephesian church, but, but what, are, what have we been settling for? What do we ask God for? What is it that we want that maybe God doesn't want? What is it that we want God to do that maybe God has no intention of doing? Here are some things from, from my own life. Here are times, there are times in my life when I have settled for this. Doctrinal precision is how I determine my own growth. Doctrinal precision means growth. So the more precise I am in my theology, the more I'm growing. I've settled for that in my life. And as you've heard before, you can be really good at theology and have an awful lot of knowledge and be a real jerk. That was me. Here's something else we can settle for. Technique-driven, formulaic Christianity. This is the kind of thing we can settle for in which we think back to the boxes. I have my quiet time every day. I have Christian friends. I listen to Christian music, which none of those things are necessarily wrong. But oftentimes, they are in conjunction with this. No sense of the importance of the local church. 
No sense of thinking about the significance of baptism. No sense of thinking about how important the Lord's Supper is with God's people. No sense of community with God's people, like accountable community, submitting to one another. So I can check off the boxes as if I'm doing all these things right, but yet downplay the church, downplay the Lord's Supper, downplay community in the church. I've settled for that. Here's another one. Closing the gap mentality. You ever had this mentality? This is a mentality where you wake up every day and you think to yourself, okay, this is what I believe and this is my life and every day I've got to close that gap between those two. You ever live that life? You ever fall into that trap of formulaic Christianity, technique-driven Christianity? Here's what I believe, here's my life, now let's work hard today to close that gap. Not much thinking there about being filled with all the fullness of God, is there? At least in my life. See, maybe what Paul is saying to us is that we aren't drawing from the resource that we have. Maybe there's a whole account that we can be drawing from every day and we are just not drawing from that account. What Paul's getting at is is he's saying, look, put your faith in gear. Draw from God every day. Draw from Jesus every single day. Draw from him. Draw from the love of God every day. How in the world can we be filled with the fullness of God? If that's his one request, if all these other things are components of it, and this is the big idea, that we should be filled with all the fullness of God, how in the world can we do this? How can we be strengthened for Christ to dwell in us? How can we be rooted and grounded in love? How can we know the four-dimensional love of God? How can we be filled with God? Well, verse 16 begins to tell us the answer. The Spirit. The Holy Spirit works this into us. Let's be blatantly clear. None of this happens without the Spirit. None of this happens. We will never be filled with the fullness of God apart from the Holy Spirit working in us. Nothing happens in our life with God without the Holy Spirit. Nothing. There is no faith without the Holy Spirit. There is no obedience without the Holy Spirit. There is no receiving of the Word of God without the Holy Spirit. There is no good thought apart from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit must act on us. We are absolutely dependent upon God, the Holy Spirit, in our lives. And you know what he does? He starts taking the truths that we know, and he starts taking the truth of God's word, and he begins to work that into us. You see, this is not deficit motivation at all. This is grace motivation. This is the Holy Spirit taking what we have, Christ dwelling in us, the love of God, and making it more and more apparent in our lives. This is the Holy Spirit taking what God has done in our lives by grace and working that out in our lives. 
That's why it's important for us to meditate and to think and to reflect on what we have learned. And we take time to reflect and think about Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit is the one that takes what we have in our minds and pushes it down into our hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one that takes what we're learning in our heads and pushes it into our heart and out into our lives. And that happens as we reflect and think and meditate and think about our own lives through what God has said. And let's be really clear when I'll try to be very clear about this meditation thing. I'm not talking about meditation in which you're sitting there and being quiet and trying to figure out how you and God are the same. The reason you take the truth of the gospel and who Jesus is and meditate on it is so you can realize you're not. Meditating is also not this. Um, Meditation is not, Dave, visualizing, sinking the game-winning free throw in our upcoming church basketball league championship. Meditation is not me visualizing a reality so that we hope and I hope that it comes true. Meditating on Jesus is affirming that I am out of touch with reality and that I need God to open my eyes to see things as they really are. And when we meditate on Jesus and reflect on our lives, relationships, work, how we treat people, what's going on inside of us, the Spirit takes truth and pushes that down into us and pushes it out into our lives. Do you see? Paul is saying we need the Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit takes the truth and begins to work it into us, it means that our hearts will be grabbed with what is true. It means that our hearts will be disturbed by what is true. It means that our lives will be disrupted because we'll begin to realize I am wanting something that God isn't wanting. And I've been asking God for something that he doesn't want me to have. It means that the Holy Spirit will work comfort into us. It means that we will be captivated over and over by our Savior, by what Jesus has done. It means that we can even be chained and recognize that our chains are in Christ. Very briefly, think about the four-dimensional love of God. Reflect on that. Meditate on that just for a moment. Have you ever thought about how long the love of God is for you? Because if you read the Bible, what you will find out about the length of God's love is that it started in eternity past, before you were ever born, and it extends into eternity future. It means that you haven't lived one day apart from the love of God in Christ. Isn't that amazing? You ever thought about the depth of God's love? That he was willing to come to earth? That he was willing to be raised by sinful people 
endure temptations just like we have, endure people spitting on him, willing to be crucified, willing to endure hell. That's pretty deep love, isn't it? You ever thought about the width or the breadth of God's love for you? That it's continuous and you can't get away from it. As far as the east is from the west, you can't ever find the outer limits of his love for you in Jesus. You ever thought about the height of God's love? And his love is so high that one day he will bring you to him. And you will be with him forever. It means that all things will be restored. It means that we will be home. I've shared this with you a couple years ago, but I wanted to share it with you again. And this is where we will end. Jenny and I have a friend back in the mountains, uh, and she was a constant source of comfort for us, probably more Jenny than me because they spent more time together. And she wrote this letter. I'm only going to read a portion of it, but this is what she said. And I hope that you will process all of this through what we've talked about, what what has led Paul to pray what he's asked for, and what it's like to reflect and think about your life through the lens of Jesus. I wrote this note. This is our friend Rebecca. I wrote this note. She sent this to Jenny and a bunch of her friends. I wrote this note in response to a particular conversation that I had the other day. Not many of you were present, but some of you were present in another conversation I had earlier in the year while our children played. Both times a comment was made, not represented here verbatim, but that your life, Rebecca, is exciting, or that working outside of the home and doing other things is exciting. Both times I just put my head down and didn't say anything. It wasn't that I had no reply, but rather that my reply would be so long and not fit into our rapid, short-lived conversation. So I purposed in my heart that I would take some time to write you for encouragement in your paths of raising up your children and in teaching them at home. Be grateful for the grace and fertility of both you and your spouse's bodies and your health and be able to keep and raise and nurture your children. That is exciting. Be grateful that you were either raised in a Christian home or came to the gospel of Jesus in your youth so that you did not suffer the ravages of the world's dehumanizing wisdom and culture of death. That is is exciting. Be grateful that you are choosing each day the best path for your family, whatever schooling choice you make, and that we live in a culture in which we actually have choices. That is exciting. I guess I would tell you that before I heard the gospel, I was in fact concerned with myself and made every effort to fulfill all of my dreams. I danced I had many adventures, I had multiple lovers, and I traveled. I had a career, I went to college for art, and I skydived and rock climbed. I saw cities and countrysides. Sounds exciting, huh? Those are just the parts you would post on Facebook. Well, it wasn't beautiful. It was full of pain and death and darkness. I was deceived. But when I heard the truth and met the lover of my soul, I was undone forever. 
He changed me and lifted me up out of the miry pit I was in. He sat me down and taught me. It was only when I forgot my dreams and surrendered to his loving kindness that I truly began to live an exciting life. He gave me a calling, and even though I was a murderer and a liar, he gave me a son and called me blessed. Having all the baggage of a life lived in the flesh and not taught the way of the Lord, from time to time I fall into wrestling against flesh and blood, mostly with my husband. Let me tell you, he was a real piece of work. That was my editorial comment, by the way. It is always and only when we go to the cross and walk in forgiveness and patience, forgetting our own selves, that we are healed and see growth. Now that is exciting. May I decrease so that he might increase. I know that at the end of your days, when you look back and see the beautiful life and lives of your families, you will see the real excitement of every moment by every moment that you constantly pour into them. But my prayer for you is that you would truly see it now. And that would give you continued strength as you press on. For any thrill or exciting personal adventure for oneself pales in comparison. I do get it. That you were encouraging me and being kind to me as friends. But my fear would be that you might not actually see the glory in what you are doing. And how eternally bright that is. My hope for you all is that you would see in every day's small task lies the opportunity for worship, obedience, praise, and honor. To me, now that I know the Lord, I tell you the truth, scrubbing the floor on my knees is more exciting than skydiving, for I am worshiping God. Tucking my son in at night and praying for him is more powerful than sitting before CEOs in a boardroom. Pulling weeds and putting away books at night is more restful and satisfying than a 600-day spa. I have traveled all over the country and the world, eaten meals at the best places. I wept before a breakfast recently because it was so wholesome and simple and quiet. That is exciting. You are exciting. Do not forget to measure by the Lord's measuring, not the world's. Totally opposite. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would give us the desire to want to be filled with your fullness. And that knowing that by having you, we indeed have everything. For your glory, Jesus, I pray. Amen.